Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Maybe you've heard the buzz about sugar. Sugar, sugar cancer, diabetes, obesity. What are we supposed to do? It gets so confusing. We've been told that fat was bad, but now fat is okay. What are we supposed to do? Well, I have invited Gary Tobbs to come back. And he was on the show years ago where we talked about his other book, Why We Get Fat. And I will put a link in the show notes for that interview. So you can go ahead and listen to that. It's a highly popular interview. And in this time, we're going to talk about sugar with Gary Tobbs, who's an investigative journalist. His latest book is The Case Against Sugar. And he goes on to explain why he even titled it that way. Thank you so much for listening. I will circle back after my interview with Gary. Gary Tobbs, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I've really been looking forward to this, and I know my listeners are because I had you on some years ago, and we talked about your other book, Why We Get Fat, and you have a new book that's come out called The Case Against, the Case Against Sugar, and I'm really looking forward to talking about what you found as you were writing this book and how this can apply to the health situation we have currently in our current culture. Well, I look forward to it. Um, and I'm glad we spoke about why we get fat, because people get confused about whether I'm saying, you wait, do we only have to cut sugar consumption if we want to get reverse obesity? And the answer is no. So what I wrote on why we get fat and good calories, bad calories still holds. I'm kind of addressing a different question here. What's the question you're addressing this time? Okay, so, and again, the case against sugar, you know, it's got this kind of legalistic title. Um, in my author's note, I say that if uh, this were a legal case, it would be the, what I'm giving is the prosecution's argument. So the question is then, what crime am I saying has been committed? And <clears throat> what, in particular, what I'm, focused on here is this idea that we see uh, obesity and diabetes epidemics erupt in populations um, whenever they transition from whatever their traditional diet is to Western diets and lifestyles. So when populations become more affluent, when they become more westernized, and it doesn't matter what the population is, so it could be Southeast Asians living on, you know, on these high-carb diets, <clears throat> or Okinawans living on, uh, you know, with a lot of tubers in their diet, or it could be Inuits living on caribou and seal meat, or Native Americans living on, you know, primarily buffalo, and um, it doesn't matter what it is when they become westernized, when they start trading with the West and they start eating like we do in America in from the late 19th century onward, they experience these explosive epidemics of obesity and diabetes. And the conventional wisdom is it's sort of a gamesh of things that go with Western diets and lifestyle from 
<clears throat> sleep deprivation to stress to lack of physical activity and more than anything else it's just too many calories available and um, I don't find that very compelling as you'd gather from my previous books and so the simplest possible hypothesis the prime suspect in this these epidemics and and it's often to always been the case that when these epidemics occur somebody says my god we've been eating an enormous amount of sugar suddenly and sugar happens to be metabolized in a way that would really implicate it in this problem of insulin resistance and you know is type 2 diabetes the common form of diabetes is a disorder of insulin resistance so it's not that you're deficient in insulin as in the case with type 1 diabetes which is the acute form that's usually diagnosed in childhood but that we become resistant to the insulin we secrete such that you need more and more insulin to do the job of controlling your blood sugar and for a variety of reasons uh, again sugars would could be expected to cause insulin resistance and certainly you can cause insulin resistance by feeding them you know in animals by doing it so that's kind of the argument it was always the prime suspect on a population-wide level so whenever populations experience these epidemics you can find out that sugar consumption has recently increased significantly and on a sort of physiological level uh, you would expect sugars to cause insulin resistance so why aren't we saying they cause insulin resistance and if they do not only is sugar the cause of obesity and diabetes type 2 diabetes but it's it least increases the risk if not causes a lot of the very serious chronic diseases that associate with sugar which means heart disease stroke I mean with obesity and diabetes so that means heart disease stroke cerebrovascular disease um, cancer Alzheimer's so uh, you know it's a uh, it's a lot it is a lot and yeah. we've been so trained and programmed to believe that fat was the culprit to all of our problems, right? Eating dietary fat. And and then I, and I think about being, as being a parent, my kids are now soon to be 17 and 15. And um, the, the food and the way that they've been eating in schools with snacks or the Gatorades or the, after when they used to play youth soccer, you know, having the snack time or even um, how prevalent Gatorade or the sports drinks are on the athletic fields or like for my kids in the swimming pools. Yeah, it's pretty crazy what happened in America in the last 50 years and, and sort of all around the world as well. Um, it's funny. I was just, uh, it's not funny. It's kind of tragic. I, <clears throat> I was watching a video this morning that uh, some <clears throat> uh, low carb friendly doctors had sent around of uh, Charleston, West Virginia and taken in 1981 and it's a, it's just driving down the street with the camera and you're looking at pedestrians on the street and this i think was an 11 minute video <clears throat> and it they go from being very lean to sort of a little bit plump <laughs> mm-hmm. there's none of the morbid obesity we see today at least not in this video and and 
people were built differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this is at all accurate, if it was all, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe when they made the video, whenever they saw a fat person, they edited it out because they thought it would be bad for the civic, you know, publicity for Charleston. I don't know. But if, if this was at all accurate, I mean, we, our population has changed dramatically. So what happened in this country is and, and and as a result around the world is in the 1950s 60s we became obsessed with this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease and uh, the researchers knew that this was just a hypothesis and they had it tested and it actually never was confirmed in the various clinical trials that were testing it but the more tests they did and the more money we spent testing it the last two trials cost about 250 million dollars um the more we convinced ourselves that the hypothesis had to be true so by 1984 the u.s government sets into motion this series of uh, sort of consensus conferences and then huge government reports from the NIH, from the uh, Surgeon General's Office, from the National Academy of Science, all driven to getting us to eat low-fat diets and to reduce our saturated fat content. And in doing so, and by you know the 1990s, they had clearly succeeded, and and even the Centers for Disease Control was pushing industry to come out with low fat, uh, low saturated fat versions of familiar products. So you, you know, the classic example is yogurt, where you start with full fat yogurt that's been consumed by populations for thousands of years or hundreds, you know few thousand years and you remove the fat because it supposedly gives us heart disease and then you were now you have this sort of insipid food-like substance that doesn't taste like anything so you have to make it taste good so you replace it the fat calories with sugar or high fructose corn syrup which is a, another kind of sugar and now you can sell it as a heart healthy diet food and we all eat it thinking it's a heart healthy diet food and our sugar consumption goes up because sugar is kind of given this benign, this pass as this sort of benign substance that we can all consume without fear of getting fat. To the point I have, I recently ordered uh, American Heart Association cookbook that was published in 2000. And it's low fat and luscious desserts, cakes, cookies, pies, and other temptations. And it's all low fat versions of popular desserts that you can eat without apparently any fear of uh, side effects like getting fatter because they're low in fat. So, you know, all of us, and this also, by the way, coincided with high fructose corn syrup coming in and and high fructose corn syrup is, is... effectively identical to sugars and its chemical components, glucose and fructose, but we didn't know it was sugar. So products like Gatorade or Snapple iced teas or even Coca-Cola and Pepsi can have it as it's the very first um, component on the ingredient list. And we didn't know we were drinking variations of sugar water, which in the 70s we would have assumed you know, are dangerous. Mothers would have told their kids, don't drink this stuff. It's just sugar water. And we know sugar water is, you know, it's ration sugar consumption. That's what people did. Um, I recently did an interview with uh, Anna LaPay out here in Berkeley. 
And she pointed out in her introduction, it was fascinating that if you have a Adwala, you know, protein smoothie for breakfast, and then a, say a Pepsi for your midday snack, and then an iced tea, and then you know uh, Gatorade after your workout, even a small Gatorade. Just from that alone, you're getting about a hundred grams of sugar in a single day. And you, th- with the exception of the Pepsi, you'd think they were all healthy and good for you. Mm-hmm. But we've been trained that way, haven't we? We have been trained to think that way, and and. You know, if you go back 200 years ago, back to a period in the American history when diabetes was a, a vanishingly rare disease, you know, researcher could spend, a physician could spend 20 years of his life and see only two cases of diabetes and then write them up because they were so interesting and get it published in a medical journal. Um, back then, we consumed in one week roughly the sugar content of a single 12 ounce can of coca-cola um now you know again you're going to consume that much four or five times a day and you could do it just thinking that it's you know these are all healthy foods because they're low in fat mm-hmm. wow so yeah, it's what when you say we used to consume what was roughly in a can of coca-cola <laughs> over a course of a week what are we consuming in a course of a day now? Well, it's actually surprisingly hard to tell. Um, and sometimes, uh, again, I, I'm always awed by the sugar industry public relations campaigns. And I feel this has been part of their public relation campaign as they <clears throat> lobbied the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture to adjust what they were stating as sugar consumption. So the USDA tracks the availability of sugar that the industry makes, and how much sugar, high fructose corn syrup, the industry makes available to the American public. And they do this, you know, they, they know what the industries are producing, and they know how much is being imported and how much is being exported. And then they could divide that by the number of people in the country, and you get per capita availability, which... You know, again, in, say, 18, 17, 200 years ago, might have been between 5 to 10 pounds of sugar per year. And by 1999, when it peaked, we were up to 155 pounds of sugar per year. So 15 to 30 times as much sugar. Um, Since then, it's been coming down, the sugar availability. Then the question is, how much of that do we actually consume and that you end up with a number that's, you know, almost impossible to interpret uh, based on these surveys where the government asks people how much sugar they consume that day. And, you know, people clearly uh, misremember how much of any food they consume. Mm-hmm. So the... Um, but the one way or the other, uh, we're now down. Uh, sugar availability has been coming down since 1999. I don't think it's a coincidence that we became aware of the obesity epidemic between 95 and 98. And then within a year, people, you know, the sugar can caloric sweetener, sugars and high fructose corn syrup starts coming down. Now we're probably at around 130 pounds. So still 
you know, uh, at least a factor of 12 more than we would have been consuming 200 years ago. And still more than that. We're getting back to where we were when the obesity epidemic started. But in the meantime, a whole world of people have become obese and diabetic. And in one of the problems I talk about in the book, the second, third to last chapter is called the if-then problem number one. And uh, when you know, women particularly uh, become insulin resistant and then are, uh, so they have high blood sugar and high insulin levels of, um, when they're pregnant, they will pass the uh, propensity, the predisposition to become obese and diabetic onto their children. Um, and uh, that, when it's been studied in Native American tribes, has been called the vicious cycle of the intrauterine environment. And that's a, that's a really scary thing, because that means each generation that's, you know, if I'm right, that's consuming so much sugar, becoming insulin resistant, gaining, getting fatter, getting more diabetic, maybe becoming gestationally diabetic when they're pregnant. So you're, you're not diabetic before the pregnancy, but then the uh, pregnancy itself is kind of an insulin resistant state. And so then your children are even more predisposed to become obese and diabetic and to, to do so at a younger and younger age. Gary, does that mean we need to feel hopeless or is there hope? Well, there's, I think there's hope. Um, I mean, clearly there's hope or I wouldn't be doing what I do. Um, I think the first thing that has to happen is people have to understand the nature of the problem. So, <clears throat> you know, the worst that's been said about uh, sugars for the past hundred years is that they're empty calories so that they're things we can consume in excess I mean, that we, you know, the problem is we consume it in excess. They don't bring any vitamins and minerals or fiber or protein to the diet. So they're sort of calories we don't need, but we consume them because we like them too much. And then the solution is, well, you either exercise more or you cut back on all calories or perhaps you, you know, consume the sugars in moderation. When Whatever that means, we're going to discuss that. Um, what I'm arguing is something different, which is sugar is literally toxic, um, not a short-term toxin, not, you know, you drink a Coca-Cola and you have some chemical reaction that makes you drop dead a day later, but it's a toxin that works over years to decades. Um, and as such, it's as, you know, the way I phrase it in the book is that sugar is likely to be a cause of diabetes in the same way that we say cigarettes cause lung cancer. You know, you've over the course of 10 or 20 years, you get these diseases because of the, the sugar or because of the cigarettes. And um, the first thing you have to do to improve your diet is to remove the sugar. The other is to sort of fix the metabolic disturbance that the sugar causes, which is what I'm talking about in my book, Why We Get Fat. And that's when you go on these, you know, low carbohydrate, high fat diets, where you're minimizing the amount of insulin you need to process the foods you're consuming. And, you know, at least a lot of people, I don't know what percentage, but a significant amount can reverse the damage. Um, and I, the interesting thing is if 
you were to eat this way pregnant, um, there's a significant possibility that you could break this vicious cycle and not um, pass this problem on to our children. Uh, the problem is getting studies done to test that hypothesis because it basically means um, getting an institutional review board, some kind of academic research institution to test the idea that women should be eating entirely differently than they've been told to eat when they're pregnant. <laughs> and that's a tough one to get uh, researchers to agree is an ethical experiment. Mm -hmm. Well, in this, this, you know, insulin resistance, I remember when I, I was pregnant back in the early 2000s and we would do the blood, the <clears throat> glucose Right. There was no talk. I mean, I didn't even hear about what <laughs> insulin resistance was until I came upon your book, Why We Get Fat. And uh, so, you know, many years later. So how, first off, how do people even find out if they're insulin resistant? Well, um, there's ways to do it. It's funny. The, um, the term that the medical community uses and has embraced is this idea of metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is a... Uh, pre-diabetic, pre-obese, pre-heart disease state that um, is fundamentally a syndrome of insulin resistance. But when your physician diagnoses it, they don't talk about insulin resistance or insulin levels because insulin levels and insulin resistance per se are too difficult for a physician to measure and to, to gauge in a 15-minute or even a one-hour office visit. So when the medical uh, authorities decided to discuss metabolic syndrome, they diagnosed it by a slew of uh, a cluster of, of uh, metabolic abnormalities that don't include insulin resistance. So if you're getting fatter, so the first thing your doctor is supposed to look for is whether your waist size is increasing. That's a sign you're in, uh, you have metabolic syndrome and are so insulin resistant. If your HDL cholesterol is low, that's what people refer to as your good cholesterol. If your HDL is low, that's a sign of insulin resistance. If your triglycerides are high, so triglycerides are a, uh, one form that, that, that fat is found in your bloodstream, um, and so if triglycerides are high, that's a sign you're insulin resistant. If you've got glucose intolerance, which is what you're measuring, uh, you know, you had measured when uh, assessed when you were pregnant, that's a sign. If your blood pressure is elevated, that's a sign. So your doctor might look at all these, and they're all relatively easy to measure, and say, look, you have metabolic syndrome. Um, most of us know it, and they might also say not only you have metabolic syndrome, but you're becoming, you know, you're pre-diabetic um, or gestationally diabetic. That means you're insulin resistant, and insulin resistant, uh, you're uh, is far too insulin resistant for both your health and the baby's health. Um, so all these things together, and they, they're all relatively easy to get checked out. Um, will tell you whether or not you're insulin resistant. But again, if you're getting fatter and that weight is around your waist, that's a very good or a very bad sign, depending on how you look at it. And then again, the the what I think, my journalistic perspective, is that the treatment is to to switch to a diet that doesn't require a lot of insulin to process, which means getting the 
carbohydrates, the sugars and grains and easily digestible starchy vegetables out of your diet and replacing them with, you know, fat and sort of green leafy vegetables. Mm-hmm. Now, what about using the A1C? Um, A1C is a valid test of um, insulin resistance. So that's uh, hemoglobin A1C. Your <clears throat> hemoglobin molecules get um, it's called glycated, and that's what your this test is measuring. And I, I'm assuming, and again, you know, I'm not a doctor, but if your doctor measures. Uh, A1C and it's elevated, meaning it's above like five and a half or six, he's going to tell you that you're pre-diabetic. And then he's going to, you know, then that's the question. He'll probably tell you to lose weight, exercise more. And that's this. And take metaphorum. And take metformin, yeah, that's a possibility. Now, I think metformin's a pretty benign drug. It might even be a benevolent drug. But if I were diagnosed with high A1C, I would want to change my diet before I would want to go on a drug. Um, The physicians are kind of programmed to think that nobody wants to stay on a diet. And the reason they're programmed to think that way is because for uh, their entire careers, most of them, they've been telling people that the way to lose weight is to eat less and to sort of be hungry all the time. Or maybe to eat less and exercise more, which would be to really be hungry all the time. And not to cut back on carbohydrates or sugars, particularly because they're programmed to think somehow we need them in our diets and they don't want to be perceived as uh, prescribing high-fat diets because they've been programmed to think that those will cause heart disease. Again, a lot of bad, and this is, you know, when I got into this as an investigative journalist without any biases other than I think I knew what good science is, um, you know, over the past 50 years of the nutrition obesity research communities just embraced all these ideas that they were poorly tested. When they were tested, they failed the test. And when we applied them in our lives, they're just, they just play havoc on our bodies. I mean, it's almost like the perfect storm of bad ideas about what a healthy diet is. And whenever they found people who were eating healthy diets, like the French or the Swiss, with the uh, you know, high fat contents in their diets, high saturated fat diets, and they were among the longest lived populations in the world, they found some excuse so that they could, you know, well, maybe the French are so healthy because they drink red wine, and maybe the Swiss are so healthy because they walk up and down glaciers all day long, instead of saying to themselves, maybe they're so healthy because they consume very little sugar and eat these sort of high fat high saturated fat diets with all natural healthy fats um so anyway that's you know so if someone doesn't have the metabolic syndrome is not insulin resistant is it less toxic for them to have sugar consumption you know on not on a frequent basis like we do in the united states but back when you know like in the 70s i think about the amount of sugar that would come through our household it was on occasion. It wasn't an everyday thing. So if somebody, so my question is, if somebody doesn't have insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, can they ha- have 
more sugar intake than somebody who does have insulin resistance. Well, and there, I mean, so you're basically saying there are clearly people who can tolerate a significant amount of sugar in the diet. Yes. You know, if I'm right, so just we can imagine that every sentence I say from here on in is preceded by the phrase, if I'm right. Um, <clears throat> um, there are clearly people who live to be 95 and, you know, consume 100 pounds of sugar a year, or even 150, just as there are people who live to be 95 and never get lung cancer and smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. Um, you know, those people can clearly tolerate it. The question is, how do you know if you're one of those people? So yeah, if you're lean and you, you know, your HDL is elevated and you're, you're not getting fatter and you're not, you're getting diabetic, then clearly you can tolerate so far the sugar you're consuming. Here's where it gets tricky though. And this is where my wife refers to me as the Grinch. <laughs> so Again, obesity, and so the idea argument I make is that sugar causes insulin resistance because of this, the chemical components and how they're metabolized in the body. And insulin resistance is associated with not just obesity, it is type 2 diabetes, it's associated with obesity, and obesity and diabetes will increase your risk of all these other chronic diseases, including cancer and Alzheimer's. And we now know that insulin and insulin signaling plays a really fundamental role in the cancer process. So uh, tumor cells, as they're, um, the cells as they're, they're transitioning from being healthy to being um, cancerous, will uh, change their metabolism such that they now they require an enormous amount of glucose, of blood sugar to fuel their cells so they could then use the end products of metabolizing glucose to uh, build, you know, to multiply in, in out of control as they do because they have to constantly build new daughter cells. Um, and to do this, to get the glucose they need, they upregulate, uh, they, they in effect turn on receptors on their surfaces that will pull in insulin, which then functions, uh, that will connect insulin, which then functions to signal the cell to take up even more sugar. So you've got insulin and a related hormone called insulin-like growth factor, um, that when they're elevated, they're going to drive cells to take up more sugar, and that's going to help the metabolizing the sugar is going to cause more mutations in the DNA in those cells, which is going to lead to um, a greater risk that those cells are going to become cancerous. And once they do become cancerous, this whole process is going to feed the cancer process and uh, increase the chance that these cells will metastasize as well once they become cancerous and spread around the body. And it's a pretty grim story and it's now believed by some of the most influential cancer researchers in the world people like uh, Lou Canley who runs the cancer research program at Weill Cornell Medical School or Craig Thompson who's president of um, the Sloan uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Medical Center in Manhattan which is one of the you know three or four most uh, uh, respected cancer research hospitals in the world. And so these people think if you don't want to get, if you want to minimize your risk of cancer, you want to eat diets that minimize insulin secretion. 
And if you want to increase your risk of cancer, you can increase diets that stimulate insulin secretion. So it's conceivable that you can be lean. This is where the Grinch argument comes in. Uh, you know, lean, relatively healthy, no signs of metabolic syndrome, and yet if you get cancer someday, you might have gotten it because of the sugar content of your diet. And I hate to say something like that because, first of all, before I started my research, I would have assumed it was quackery even to voice <laughs> something like that. But second of all, um, I don't want to imply, you know, cancer is a horrible, awful cancer and Alzheimer's. I mean, I'd, I'd rather have heart disease if I have my choice of how to die. Um, and I don't want people, nobody wants to think that they brought it upon themselves. I mean, clearly smokers who get lung cancer are going to think that way as they should, even if it's possible that the smoking didn't cause lung, their lung cancer. Um, so nobody wants to think they brought these things on themselves, but this is a legitimate interpretation of the evidence and it's it's scary and when you look in populations again we talked about this transition from traditional um diets and lifestyles to western diets and lifestyles uh one of the things that seems pretty clearly to increase in prominence is is cancer prevalence a whole variety of common cancers um breast cancer and colon cancer perhaps most prominently and the conventional wisdom again is that this is caused by whatever it is that makes people obese and what we think makes people obese is you know that they eat too much and exercise too little so there are these 700 page you know authoritative reports put out by cancer research organizations suggesting that the single worst thing we can do to increase our cancer risk is be sedentary. And again, I think that means you and I, by the way, at the moment are engaging in carcinogenic activity because we're sitting down. Um, I would argue it's, you know, consuming sugar. So with me, with that being said about sugar, if we can make it tangible, because I can imagine my listeners right now are saying, okay, how much sugar, because they don't know what 130 pounds may mean in a year. But what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Like how many sugar grams would be okay and from what sources? Well, and again, I wish I had a simple answer to that. Um, first of all, it's assuming that all your listeners are you know, roughly equivalent health and you probably have listeners who are, you know, run marathons. Mm -hmm and weigh 110 pounds, and you probably have listeners who are overweight, you know, are overweight or obese, um, and so insulin resistant, and you know, are going down a, a metabolic alley that they really have to back out of to be healthy. Um, so for the former, you know, again, um, the, the marathon runners might be perfectly fine with Yes. What I would, I mean, again, it's hard to de even define moderation in this, mm -hmm. you know, what I'm arguing to so think about it again, I'm arguing that sugar causes type two diabetes in the same, you know, 
same way uh, we know that the, in using the same definition of causality that people use when they say cigarettes cause lung cancer. So we don't tell cigarettes, well, we don't say smoking too much causes lung cancer, right? We don't say over smoking of <laughs> cigarettes causes lung cancer, even though there's clearly a point at which you're going to have smoked one cigarette too many. <laughs> Right. And if you had only smoked 10 less in your lifetime, you wouldn't have gotten lung cancer or even one less. I mean, it's just on some level that has to be true. And yet we don't care. What we say is cigarettes cause lung cancer. When you go into your doctor, your doctor says don't smoke if you're a smoker, because if you smoke, you're going to, you know, you're increasing your risk of lung cancer and heart disease and emphysema and God knows what else. If sugar causes diabetes, and we can't say overconsumption of sugar causes diabetes, we can't say eating too much sugar, we, and the advice doesn't become avoid too much sugar, which is what it is today, because you don't know what too much is. Exactly. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is this question of whether sugar is an addictive substance. So most of us think that sugar is not, um, you know, something we should moderate in our lives. Most of us think it's, we should ration our sugars consumption. Even those of us who think I'm a quack aren't going to let their kids consume all the sugar they want because they think it's probably, you know, there, there is a place at which they're consuming too much and that we will get to that point if we don't make some conscious attempt not to. Um, so, and I think there are a lot of people in the world like me who find it easier to consume no sugar at all or virtually no sugar than to try and consume it in moderation. So, and I, I have the advantage. So when I wrote my book, it was informed by two basic facts of my life that I can't undo. Thank God. Well, anyway, one of them is that I'm a parent of two pre-adolescent children. <laughs> okay, so I have to ration their sugar consumption. Um, and I'm a former smoker. So I know what it's like to spend your life thinking that you won't be happy if you don't continue to indulge your craving. So when you're a smoker, I mean, if you think about it, you, you know, and thank God not as many people are today as were when I was younger, <clears throat> you um, have your, basically wake up looking forward to your first cigarette. And then you might smoke that uh, before breakfast with your first cup of coffee, and then you have another cigarette as you're waiting to go to work, or you're in your car going to work, or you're walking to work, and then you have a, you work until your cigarette break, and then you come back from your cigarette break, and then you work looking forward to lunch when you have your next cigarette, and then, you know, just boom, all day long until even, uh, if you remember old movies, you know, the, the Sex wasn't over until you had a cigarette after sex. Um, it's, it was crazy, and you couldn't, if you were a smoker, you couldn't imagine living without cigarettes because that's what got you through your day. Even as you knew that there, you know, you were coughing and your clothes and your breath smelled bad and all the other problems with it and the awareness that it was going to give you lung cancer, likely, you still got through your day looking forward to cigarettes. And so, that's partially why 
doctors don't tell smokers to smoke in moderation because they know it's kind of impossible for most smokers to smoke in moderation. They know, just as you wouldn't tell an alcoholic to try and drink, you know, if you have know somebody who's an alcoholic, you don't say, just look, just try to drink a couple of glasses of wine a day because you know that the couple of glasses of wine, they're not going to be able to keep it at that. And clearly that's true for a lot of us with sugar. And just like these other addictions, I think you can get to the point where you don't miss them. So again, there was a period for the first three weeks of quitting smoking, you basically crave it all the time, the cigarettes. Your neurons in your brain are crying out for nicotine. And for the first three months, you're just generally unhappy and depressed most of the time. And for the first year, you could be sort of, you know, grouchy and unhappy. And eventually you get to the point where you can't imagine that you ever smoked. You can't imagine smoking another cigarette. And I think that happens also clearly happens with people with sugar where they might have cravings in the beginning, but they can get to the point where they can't imagine why they ever had to start every day with an orange juice or why they had to drink a Gatorade after a workout or, um, you know, why they were looking forward to their donuts, <laughs> you know, in their midday break. So, um, while it's possible that there is a level of sugar we can all consume and be healthy, we don't know what it is, and some people, even that much sugar is going to dominate their life. Oh, you know, tomorrow I get to have my dessert. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I personally don't like thinking like that. I would rather not have dessert at all, and I find that I don't miss it. The, the advantage I have, though, I'm is that I work by myself, so I'm not in an office where other people are eating sugar, um, you know, where somebody's bringing in donuts for a snack. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I'm aware of how difficult that makes life. You know, it's out of sight. Sugar, more than anything else, out of sight tends to be out of mind. Um, but you have to be able to live in a world where it can be out of sight, and we don't live in that world. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. And with kids, it becomes even harder, I think, because there's so yeah. many different vehicles in. So when you say no sugar... And I want to clarify this again for the listeners, because they're saying, what about fruit, Gary? What about fruit? Fruit's been told yeah. to us it's healthy. Well, and yeah, this is um, one of those assumptions that, um, I mean, there's two ways to look at the fruit argument. One is fruit is full of uh, vitamins and minerals, and therefore we should eat it and it makes us healthier. And by the same kind of thinking, uh, chocolate milk is healthy because it doesn't matter what the sugar content of the chocolate milk is. You, you can get kids to drink their milk by making it chocolate. That's a good thing. They'll get the calcium in the milk. Um, the other viewpoint, the other paradigm is what a scientist would call it. says you're really concerned about the sugar content and the carb content of these foods. So if you, and, and toxicologists would say the dose makes the poison. So if we take an apple, for example, medium-sized apple about has a sugar content of about, you know, three or four ounces of apple juice. 
And it comes bound up in the apple in fiber, which slows down how quickly you can eat it and how quickly you're going to digest it. So the apple, four ounces of apple juice, you could basically, you know, I mean, that's, you could consume that in five seconds without too much trouble. Um, but an entire apple is not going to be consumed that quickly. And if it is, you're probably not going to consume any more. And then you're going to digest it more slowly. So the apple is healthier than the, the apple juice from which you get the sugar. But think about, you know, when we're talking about insulin resistance or diabetes. If you were a diabetic, you would have to give yourself insulin to diabetics, would say, to cover the apple. So you would have to estimate the carb content of the apple and then give yourself insulin so you could then, you know, metabolize the sugar in the apple without doing harm. <clears throat> and you could argue that if you have to cover it with insulin, then maybe you shouldn't consume it to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think, again, for obese and diabetic individuals, I don't think eating those kind of fruit is doing them any favors. And if you look at the fruit prescribed in low-carb diets, their blueberries and, and raspberries, uh, relatively low-sugar, low-carb, high-fiber, high-phytonutrient fruits. They're not apples and oranges and pears and bananas that are much richer in sugar and much richer in carbs. And therefore, you know, for those of us who gain weight easily, probably foods we shouldn't eat despite their vitamin content. Well, that uh, that I think for some of the listeners, they're going to have to really think about where they are in their current circumstance, and and how that how what you said applies to them. Because I, I one of the things is that there's a general predisposition of fruit is just healthy. So of course I should eating three bananas. Like I think about this like with high school kids, eating three bananas. That is I'm I'm being good. I'm being healthy. Well, this is, yeah, you're also talking to someone who once gained 15 pounds eating Danshu pears. <laughs> <clears throat> I was writing my second book and I was kind of burnt out and I needed, uh, you know, the sugar rush from a pear would keep me writing for an hour. So I ate about five pears a day and at the end of six months I had finished the book and gained 15 pounds. And at the time I thought, well, maybe it's just the calories from the pears, right? That's about 500 calories, but in retrospect... I'm wondering if it was the, you know, the sugar, the, um, if you think about again, uh, historically, uh, up until about the 1930s with the, uh, the, when refrigerators and freezers became, uh, um, widely available, cheap enough that we could have them in our homes and, and freezer, you know, the, you could start trans, uh, transporting fruit around the country uh, and keeping it, uh, giving it the appearance of being fresh, um, you would eat fruit seasonally. And seasonally meant, you know, a few months a year you would get fruit and the rest of the year you wouldn't. And that's why, you know, and even in the late 19th century, the sugar got cheap enough to allow people to start preserving fruits with it. And then you got canned fruits or, you know, bottled fruits that were preserved. But otherwise, you were getting fruits, you know, a couple months a year. And you might, if you gained weight, and there are, in the literature, you could find observers like 2,000 years ago talking about the slaves in ancient Rome gaining weight during, you know, when the figs were, 
mm-hmm. in season. Um, figs happen to be a high sugar food. So, you know, and then it became something we're just supposed to consume all the time and it's available all the time and our bodies didn't really avail- evolve to handle that kind of constant influx of sugar and easily digestible carbs, at least, if, again, if I'm right. And then one uh, on a food-specific note, so let's look at carbohydrates like potatoes because people, listeners may say, well, potatoes, do they really have a high sugar content? And But they also trigger a huge amount of insulin, don't they? Uh, they do. So that, well, that's the question. And that's why, um, you know, when I said, if you're asking the question, what's the sort of fundamental dietary trigger of obesity and diabetes, what causes it initially? What do you add to any population, um, to end up with obesity and diabetes epidemics? My answer is sugar. But once you've got populations that are predisposed to gain weight easily, which means ours, and you've got people like us, and what do you have to do to, to reverse that or prevent it? Well, the first thing is get rid of the sugar, clearly. But then, this, you know, if that's not enough, and it typically isn't, then you've got to get rid of these, um, these high glycemic index starches that stimulate a lot of insulin secretion. Um, and that means potatoes and grains, breads, mm-hmm. even sweet potatoes, which is hard for the paleo community to accept but um so that yeah that's that's where you go to the next step which is once i'm you know i am a product of the sugar rich environment and so i'm gaining weight easily or i'm overweight or obese what do i do about if i really want to you know fix this what do i have to do and that's where you replace these carbohydrates you remove virtually all the carbs in your diet other than those in green leafy vegetables and you replace them with fat and to do that, you have to become somebody like me who thinks butter and bacon are health foods. And I realize, <laughs> you know, I could be wrong. <laughs> well, Gary, on that note, butter and bacon are yummy. And they are. I really want to thank you for coming back today because I do know we both we need to end the show and you have to go on. So thank you so much for sharing uh, what you think as, as long, along with what you found in your in your work. Well, thank you again for having me. For some of you, what he's saying may be, ooh, this is awesome, or I'm really interested, I'm really curious. And for some of you, this may be mind-shattering. What do you mean, eat, don't eat sugar, and eat fats? So first off, I invite you to check in to what are your beliefs? Because one of the things about food is that it's a religion, or it is like, politics. There are deeply held beliefs about what is right and what is wrong. So first, check in to see what do you believe? And then second, can you listen to this interview? Can you reflect on this interview with Gary from a place of curiosity? Because as he said many times, if I am right, this is what I believe. In knowing that he's an investigative journalist, that One of the things that I respect about him and Melanie Warner, also who's been a guest on the show, is they're not tied to money to put out information about food. So they they don't have those biases in terms of I'm getting funding, so now I need to say this particular food is good or this particular food is bad. So that is a really lovely thing, that opportunity that we have with Gary Tobbs. 
and then go in and check in. What do I believe? How about food? About this food? About sugar? What do I believe about carbohydrates? What do I believe that I need to eat to fuel my body? What were beliefs that were programmed inside of me? You know, one of the things that I talk a lot about, especially with clients, is if you remember the 90s, it was all those green packages, right? Those green packages were the no, uh, it was a low fat sugar cookies that we had. I think they're good, good wells. And I remember being told in college by a nutritionist that came to talk to our team that we could eat as much sugar as we wanted, as long as there wasn't any fat. So gummy worms were okay, but chocolate wasn't. And I remember sitting there going, oh, gummy worms. I don't really like gummy worms. I mean, they were kind of interesting when I was like 11 and they first came out or I first became aware of them. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember being at a swim meet, but gummy worms. I was like, but I like chocolate. And for my belief, it didn't matter that somebody had told me that this was a better option. I couldn't do it. I didn't like gummy worms. I thought, forget it. If I'm going to eat sugar, I'm going to have chocolate. That's what I like. I'm not saying that's okay or the healthiest way, but that's the way I did it. And that's typically human behavior. So check in with your beliefs. The other thing that I invite you to consider is, and it goes back to his conversation about moderation. We've been pushed, you know, moderation in the diet and food world for a long time, moderation, moderation. And one of the things that he mentioned is about when you just don't have sugar anymore, like he talked about being a smoker. After he got over the addiction of it, there's no more drama. He doesn't have to indulge in the drama of his head. He's not thinking about when's the next time I can have it. There's no longer an interest in it. And when you can have a clean break in that, what kind of freedom can that bring in your life? Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have sugar. I'm not saying you should have X because you're ultimately the boss of yourself. I just want you to check in with what you believe check in with the information that we've been given throughout our lives and take a look at Gary's book, go read his book and then decide what do you believe? Cause you are the emotional adult in your life. You are the leader in your life. What do you believe? What works best for your body? You know, where were there flaws possibly in science and where were the science that you're like, Nope, I totally believe this. And then look at the results you have in your life. And are you getting the results that you want? That's all. And if there you aren't, then look at the gap. And again, I'm not saying that this is the right way. I'm saying go in and take a look at yourself and think about it. What would your life be if you didn't have drama with food? It's interesting when he was talking about um, that he works at home and so he doesn't have to worry about you know food coming in and people bringing in donuts. And I have a client who has decided she's chosen, not by my, I didn't tell her to do it, but she's chosen and really by reading his books um, to not eat sugar. And she works in a workplace where there's a lot of food and there's a lot of snack food and, you know, but she did the mental work on her mindset where there wasn't the drama. She just realized, you know, if I eat that, the spike in my insulin is not worth it to me. And she started making that choice and it wasn't hard for her, but you had, she doesn't white knuckle it because I don't work with my clients to white knuckle. What she does is she's worked on her brain and she's made choices as an emotional adult in her life. So I invite you to do the same, be an adult in your life, be the leader of your life and take a look without judgment, without shame. You know, how do I feel? What are the results that I want? 
how do I want to feel? I mean, and I'm not saying I want to lose 50 pounds. I'm saying, how do you want to feel? And notice, notice how different foods affect your body. It's fascinating when you do that as an experiment. And remember, like, I really believe that food is a religion. So I'd never tell people how to eat. I have parents that always want me to give um, nutrition talks to the team. And there's so much controversial data. And then there's different families' beliefs. And that's just an area that I'm not interested in poking at. So he talked about a lot of stuff about insulin resistance and how we can, you know, what are the, what's the cluster of stuff that we can look at? Moderation and this whole myth about moderation. And I want you to think about that. Does moderation work for you? Or is, you know, how do you moderate, like say Facebook, you know, how do you moderate certain aspects of your life? Are you good at that? Or and how much energy does it cost you? I'm not saying you must no longer have sugar. I'm not saying that. I'm saying check in with yourself about moderation because we have for so long been programmed about moderation. I probably should, could do a podcast just on moderation itself. And I can't wait to hear from you. I want to know from you what was most useful from this interview. If you're a newsletter subscriber, when I send out my weekly newsletters on Fridays, it's really simple. Let's simplify your life. You hit reply. And you can answer that question right there. So I invite you to sign up for my newsletter. If you haven't signed up, you can go to www.howshereallydoesit.com and sign up there. And now I want to do an iTunes shout out for giving reviews. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our friends in Canada love Canada. I always love Canada. JK Design 234. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave a review on the show. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so. Sold-